Welcome to the podcast of 37 Things You Need to Know About Modern Britain. 37 Things is a series of talks dreamt up by Bug in partnership with the House of St Barnabas. In these talks, we try to unpick modern life by asking open-ended questions about the things that seem important today, whether that's money, the media, the madness of celebrities, or the problem with the colour pink. The House of St Barnabas is a not-for-profit members club that is pledging to break the cycle of homelessness and social exclusion in London. To find out about it, go to hosb.org.uk. And Bug is a collection of journalists and business people who like to question accepted ideas. For more information about Bug and to see the other projects we're working on, go to buglondon.co.uk. And don't forget, you can actually come along to hear our 37 Things Talks which take place in the chapel at the House of St Barnabas. Just check out either of those websites for details. Welcome to the House of St Barnabas. Welcome to this uh, still fully working consecrated chapel. So don't swear or you're going to hell. Um, The House of St Barnabas, for those of you who don't know, is uh, a charity which has been here since this church was built built and before. Um, And it used to be a homeless hostel, but now, ironically given... Our topic tonight is modern work rubbish. Now they get homeless and socially excluded people into work, incredibly successfully, in fact, uh, rather shamingly for our media liberal cynicism from the stage. So I was just talking to um, uh, Keith, and he was saying that we've got that since the House of St. Barnabas started running uh, its training programs for people to get into the hospitality industry in 2013. 128 people have enrolled across eight programs, 98 have graduated, and 60 of those graduates found work within 12 months. 10th of April, in here, 12 of them graduated, and on Monday, another 17 start. So that's obviously brilliant. Um, my name's Stephen Armstrong. I'm a journalist. I write, I'm also a founder member of BUG, and we hold these talks at the House of St. Barnabas, 37 Things You Need to Know About Modern Britain, because we're the kind of people who think we can tell you the things you need to know about modern Britain. Um, and uh, I think I will introduce the panel in a second, but what the reason for having this talk, which in a sense what, where we are illustrates, is that the nature of work is changing. And uh, on the one hand, we couldn't need work more. On the other hand, the nature of what that work is is going through a very, very complex um, process. There's, there's a House of St. Barnabas book which interviews some of the people who've been through the program, and there's one quote which one of their former students said, which is, when you work, you have structure, meaning, and purpose. I need and want employment. I want to do well and progress in my job and life, and I don't want to be homeless again. So, briefly, though, I think that work is not necessarily encouraging the vast majority of us into that level of stable employment. It's complicated, the way that work is changing, more zero-hours contracts, more agency work. Um, We've got more... Uh, insecure in, internships, and so the, the, the old idea of, of work, which is that you did a job, you got on, you prospered, is becoming harder and harder to be sure of. We're seeing jobs being wiped out, whole sections, whole industries being wiped out. We're seeing it very hard for uh, younger people to find work. Um, and last year was the first year in British history that the majority, over 50% of the people who are living in poverty in this country, were in work. So the, the the position of what work is is complicated. And at the same time, we've got ridiculous, like passive-aggressive round-robin emails and sort of slides and um, 
you know, people labeling their tea bags in the fridge and you know, co-working and hot desking and all that kind of thing. So, you know, even when you're in somewhere that ought to be great, it's still a bit rubbish. Uh, and so to help us discuss that and probably disagree with that, we have our esteemed panel, who is, which is uh, Gareth Coombs, who is, was an Adelaide consultant for more than 40 years. Bob Kel well, Bob, this is in the order they're going to speak, in fact, not in the order they're sitting. Bob Kelsey, who is uh, the CEO of a financial PR company, um, and as he said, a genuinely good bloke. And then we have Lucy Kelloway, who is an FT columnist, about to become a teacher, and as she says, an all-round sarky cow. So, if you would care to welcome our first speaker, Mr. Gareth Coons. Thank you, Stephen. Um, thank you, everybody, for turning up. As Stephen pointed out, uh, my main qualification for being here and talking to you all tonight uh, is I'm old. Um, I've been around a while, um, and because of the nature of work that I've done, uh, I've worked with lots of the world's largest companies and some of the world's smallest companies, and I've seen how they've changed over the actual, not yet 40 years, but 37. Um, <laughs> I'll get there. Uh, and um, I think it's really interesting the difference to how my life was when I first started work to how some of your life might be and the kind of work that you're doing now. Uh, can I just ask to begin with, who in the audience tonight was born after 1980? Oh my good God. <laughs> uh, okay, I chose that date because 1980 was the year that I entered the workforce. So I know what's happening now is that you're all sitting there thinking, oh my God, how can he be that old? <laughs> but rest assured, I'm standing up here thinking, my God, how can they be that young? Um, it's deeply, deeply shocking. What I want to do is talk a little bit about, as I say, what I experienced when I went um, into the workforce. And therefore, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is the experience of people uh, who are going, one way or another, are going to be trapped in middle management for most of their working lives. Um, but I think what I have to say, oh, thank you, thank you, uh, will be generally relevant to both the lower paid and to those people who are in senior management about how, uh, how life has changed. And my overall sense is, I don't think work is rubbish, but I do think it's got quite a lot worse here in the 37 years that I've observed it. And that isn't necessarily worse economically, um, but I think it is worse culturally. Uh, and one of the things that I notice is that as the vocabulary has moved to talking about things like engagement and empowerment and individuals and motivation, uh, the reality has actually moved towards um, pressure to perform and conform. Uh, technology means there's actually less downtime, so the amount of pressure you're under is massively uh, ramped up the whole time. Um, individuality is not valued. There is a move towards the dehumanization in the workplace. Um, and I would say that there's also a sense that as well as measuring people's performance in terms of what they achieve, there's a sense that in order to be taken seriously, you've got to prove either suffering or sacrifice. Uh, and that rather than just sort of saying, wow, this person is brilliant, look at what they're doing, it's, God, look at how we're making these people sweat. 
And I think that's counterproductive, and I also think it's, um, it creates a less pleasant culture in which for people to develop their careers. So, as I say, I want to talk a little bit about what life can be like, what it was like for me in 1980. So imagine if you are what will, that um, you're joining me on my first day at work. And a um, few things that are very different. Obviously, no mobile phones. Not only no mobile phones, but no thought of mobile phones. It was science fiction in those days. Um, computers did exist. In fact, when I was at school, I got a job working in the uh, computer room of the only computer in the district. And anyone like to have a guess how big that computer was? Size of the fridge, good answer. Anyone else? Size of this room, better. It was actually the size of five tennis courts. Yeah, unbelievable. And that they had to build a special air-conditioned room, and it had to be as big as five tennis courts to get all the components you needed to run a computer. But that nowadays would be could be smaller than this. Uh, so that's a big change. The other thing was, uh, I cannot think of a week when probably I didn't go home. Uh, after at least two or three boozy lunches, which would have been between half a bottle of wine and a bottle of wine, topped up with a couple of pints in the evening, and like everyone else at my level, we drove home. A bit different now, isn't it? And also, when you know, every sort of year, two or three people would lose their license through uh, you know being breathalysed, and the prevailing sense was those bastards, please. How unfair! Uh, as I say, things change. So that was kind of like what it was like. But for me, my first, my, my second week at work, and I was working, I got a job in what was officially the worst advertising agency in London. Uh, but on my second week, my, in fact, not even my boss, the boss of the department came up to me and said, oh, you know, the marketing director of one of our middle-ranking clients is coming in today. Why don't you take him to lunch? And so there I was, two weeks in, knew nothing about advertising, knew less about business, definitely knew nothing about uh, the retail sector which he represented, and yet I was taking him to lunch. And he didn't mind. I, mean, I must have, God knows what I talked about, I must have bored him silly, but he put up with it, and that was you know, part of that thing. I guess he was investing in the idea of future, that you know, I might one day be somebody who might have a view about that, and he might help me. I don't know, but he put up with it. Uh, a few years later, things have got better. I'm now working at not just the best agency in London, but the best agency in the world. And that felt great. Uh, and some things that happened there, um, in fact, in all my time in advertising, there was never a year when I didn't take at least two weeks more fully paid holiday than my allotted allowance. Nobody complained, nobody even asked me, nobody ever rang up. It was just something that happened naturally. Um, there was one three-month period when I got three stonking great pay rises without being promoted. But just circumstances conspired to help me. And one of those pay rises increased three times um, because at the moment my boss told me how much he was offering me, I had a mouthful of food because we were doing it over lunch, so I couldn't reply. And he read that as me being unhappy with how much he was offering me, and he increased it twice more by the time I'd swallowed. Happy days. And then also, because work was quite stressful, I got into the habit of, uh, after lunch, 
drawing the blinds in my office and having a snooze on the sofa for about 45 minutes. And one day, the managing director came in and found me there. And at this point, usually there's a kind of a slight intake, what happened then? And I can tell you what happened then was he sat quietly at my desk until I woke up when he raised with me the issue that he'd come in to talk to me about and then he left. And he never mentioned that I was asleep when he came in and it didn't seem strange to me, but he never mentioned that. Now, okay, I was working in a privileged environment, but that didn't seem out of the norm. And as I say, my sense is that now, in most uh, medium-sized large corporations, it isn't like that anymore. I don't know what anybody else would have any views on that. But as I say, my sense is that isn't the way it is. So what's happened? Let me. Uh, I've got a, a, a graph here which I'm going to try and use to explain my theory, if I can make it work. Oh, no, that's the wrong way. There we go. Okay, this is a, a chart we use to explain uh, the nature of the world. And basically all it is, is imagine companies from being the smallest in the sector that they operate to the absolute largest. So at that end, you get the very largest in its sector. And those companies which can charge a premium versus those which are selling a commodity. So here, you've got the largest company that can sell its products at a premium. And here, you've got the largest company that can sell its products at a standard price. And those are the two sides that I'm basically going to be talking about. And the key thing is, um, if you're doing business strategy, uh, it's a great job because it's absolutely simple. Um, there are rules that just basically, depending on where you are, your strategy is decided for you. And if you don't stick to that strategy, you don't stay where you are. And very few companies realize that, and it's why um, companies get into trouble and why uh, senior managers and senior you know, leaders and businesses can get paid a lot because if they get this, they're much better than those people who don't get that. So there's absolute rules that govern how you behave depending on where you are. And there's also not absolute rules, but generally speaking, if you're in this area, the area of the star performer, you can make a gross margin of above 20%. So whatever your turnover is, uh, you can make 20% or slightly more than that. If you're in this area of niche specialism, typically 10 to 20%, market staple 5 to 10%, commodity supplier down here, you're in big trouble. You struggle to make any profits at all. Uh, and so that sort of, as I say, that, that's a, a kind of an absolute rule and it dictates where you might decide to play in the marketplace. Um, now, the key thing is, if you want to be in that star performer category, the kind of things you have to do are you have to innovate constantly. You have to build brands which set you apart from the competition. And importantly, if the market starts to slow down, you never cut your prices in order to protect your volume. So you have to develop flexible supply lines so that it's easy for you to take down the amount you're producing so you don't overproduce and have to sell it off cheaply. At the other end, if you're here, actually what you drive is everything to do with economies of scale, efficiency, um, just uh, churn it out. And what that tends to mean is if you've got a factory or if you've got something that produces something, you, need, you just need to sell loads of stuff. So you bring your price down, and because you're the biggest player in the marketplace, 
you ought to be getting economies of scale, which means it's easier for you to cut the prices than it is for the competition. So you do that to hurt them and swallow up as much of that. Now, the reason I go into all of this is because if you're in that area, the skills you need to perform there are actually highly individual and highly human-based. It's about being able to imagine what people might need in the future and be able to produce that. It's about understanding the emotions that go with that and finding ways that you can communicate effectively with them and make them... I hate this idea, and it's absolute bollocks, but it gets on God. But it gets used a lot, um, which is love brand. You make people love your brand. That's nonsense. But actually, there isn't a level of emotional engagement that goes with effective brand. And all of this is quite tough to do. Now, once you're established in the market staple area, it's about running systems. It's about running processes. It's about actually uh, get almost you put in place systems which prevent people being people and force them to behave in a certain way so that there can be no variation. There can be no uh, breaking, because all you need to do is you just want to keep turning that handle as fast as you can and produce as much as you can, as cheaply as you can. And that tends to be quite anti-humanistic. So does everybody get the kind of difference between those two types of companies? Um, can I say, if you think, given what I said about profit, which is the best area to operate in? You want to have a guess? Sorry, star performer. Thank you. Uh, yeah, great. You make more than average profits. Um, culturally, it tends to be quite nice. The problem with it is it's hard to stay there because, as I say, it's quite high risk doing things like constant innovation, investing in marketing and all of that. And actually, there is a limit on how much profit you can make because it doesn't matter how big your margins are. And in fact, the more your margins go up, the smaller number of people who can actually afford to buy your products. So there is an absolute limit on that. Whereas at the market staple end, even though your absolute level of profit is lower, you can grow, you know, you can be a hundred times bigger than other companies. If you're a hundred times, you're a hundred times bigger, even though you're making half the profitability, the maths are still working in your favor. You are making more money. And remember, it's, you know, once you've got your systems established, it's much easier to operate in that area. So what's tended to happen is this is becoming the kind of standard Western model. And it's what, if you, you know, if you buy, get a consultant in, one of the big consultancies, they will sell you that model. And they will urge you, they won't tell you this, but effectively what they'll do is they'll strip out creativity, strip out risk, put in cost reductions, put in systems which drive efficiencies. And there's great um, business academic who's got a great phrase, which he says, you can always tell uh, an industry which has had the consultants in because they've got nothing left to compete on apart from price. But that's the kind of journey that we've all been on in the West. And again, there's a knock-on effect to this because of what I said. So uh, when I was, you know, when I was at Sarches, best agency the world's ever seen, um, the way it worked was creativity made us money. So if you were a creative, you could do anything. You could commit crimes and be forgiven. You could do, you could, if you could write an award-winning ad. You were a god. But it wasn't just the creatives who benefited from that. Um, because of the magic that we were doing in terms of being a star performer, it was like, you know, we believed we had the best receptionist in the world. So she was treated wonderfully. 
The carpenters who made the furniture believed that they were the best carpenters doing the best job, that they were part of the myth of what made Sarches great. And we treated them like that. And every year, they'd be, when we took the new grads in, there'd always be one who would uh, ask a secretary to go out and get their dry cleaning. And it literally would ruin their careers because it was, this is not the Saatchi way. You do not disrespect anyone who works here. There is not that sense that anybody could do that, which is great. Now, what's happening now is if you're a star performing company, you realize that it's safer to be a market staple. So you go for volume as well. And what that means is you get a few people at the very top of the company who might be the star designers or the star coders or the brilliant marketing thinkers or what have you, who make a fortune, and then you outsource everything else. So you don't, you know, you're no longer worrying about how your products get made. That's been done in China or wherever. And so there's none of that kind of lifting up effect whereby simply by working in a great company, you are encouraged to believe that you're great and encouraged to develop yourself because you will never see the people who are doing that. And that, I think, is part of the process by which um, it's possible to be working in a good company and still feeling very, very disengaged from it. Uh, I think it's going to get worse over the last 20 years Literally, the main focus of government has been to stave off recession. And what that means is they've flooded the, 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 the market with cheap money, which means that very large but actually dying companies are kept alive. And if you're a dying company, uh, the one thing you're not interested in is taking risks. And if you don't take risks, you play by the rules, bottom right, sometimes even bottom left, you certainly don't play by the rules of top right. Uh, so I think that's a, a, a force which is, is driving more of this kind of market-staple approach to the, to the whole of uh, work. Um, shamefully, governments have embraced the idea of monopolies and it's almost selling the right for companies to operate as monopolies or have established their own monopolies or have been complicit in accepting complex monopolies. And again, if you're a monopoly company, you don't have to play by the rules of top right. And so what happens is, um, it's, you know, you just, it's easy for you to make money. You turn inward looking. Actually, the way that you succeed is not by succeeding in the marketplace, but succeeding by playing the political internal game. So cultures get poisonous and political. Uh, and one person we interviewed in the city said, the awful thing about here is it is possibly possible to succeed. Um, or in fact, the only way you can succeed is to accept the culture of vileness. And that makes you vile. Am I done? Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, can it be changed? Um, I think it's going to be really tough to change it. Uh, I think there are signs. Um, the brewing industry is really interesting, the way that craft brewers have come in and become a significant um, force in that marketplace. Uh, whether or not that actually really brings about lasting change, I'm not sure. I would say the only thing that's really likely to change this is a really good recession. And I think we missed our chance for that in 2008. Um, but, you know, when it happens, uh, that's when there's new thinking is forced in and there is a, a kind of a change in the dynamism that comes with it. But I tell you, you've got to be a really brave person to wish for that. There we go. And now, Bob, if you'd care to pick up on that. Steve introduced me as Bob Kelsey. I'm actually Robert Kelsey. And actually, there's, that, it, it, there's a... Um, uh, there's something significant in that, in that um, Stephen and I are actually 
friends. We've known each other for many, many years. And I guess after many, many years, you get to call me Bob. And, uh, and I asked him, um, <laughs> I asked him, what should I talk about? And he said, tell your story. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell my story. And my story is really one of uh, finding my mission and, uh, and how work stops being rubbish when you find your mission. But obviously, I can't just make it completely about me. So I've made it finding your mission as well. So it's going to be about uh, us all finding our mission. Uh, a bit on me. Uh, this is my PR company. Uh, I set it up in 2002. Um, it, it specializes in communicating expertise, does a lot of thought leadership, mainly for the finance sector. Most of our clients are banks for our sins, but they uh, do pay well. Um, I'm also um, a, uh, an author, um, and um, I've done all right at it. One of them, that one in the middle, What's Stopping You, sold um, 100,000 copies. Um, it's in 12 languages, and um, so it's, uh, and it's in its second edition, as you can see. So um, to my surprise, I've done quite well at that. And I'm also um, deputy chairman and founder of um, uh, a think tank called the Centre for Entrepreneurs, and uh, which looks at, uh, it, it tries to encourage entrepreneurship, um, particularly in excluded groups, which I'll come on to. And uh, one of its um, subsidiaries is Startup Britain, which is uh, famous for uh, its annual bus tour uh, around various towns trying to um, encourage people to chuck it all in and uh, become an entrepreneur. Um, but this was me uh, a, a few years ago um, as a young adult, and, uh, and I, I have to say I was probably a bit of a loser in those days. I was someone uh, very much with um, low self-esteem, um, and, uh, and, I, and consequently, uh, because I had low self-esteem, um, I thought work was rubbish. I thought, it, I, was, uh, I thought I was underpaid. Um, I thought I was overworked. I thought I was underappreciated. And, uh, and actually, one of the things I, I think we should establish is that there is a strong connection between how you feel about yourself and, uh, and how you feel about work. And uh, so certainly, um, if you have low self-esteem, you're not going to think work's particularly great. And this is me, obviously, more recently uh, outside number 10, Look at me, and um, I'm. Uh, uh, <laughs> and there's a difference, and the difference is that uh, I'm on a mission now. You can see from earlier what I did. Um, I've got some self-belief, and I'm very much on a mission. And I don't think works rubbish. I think works pretty amazing, actually. And um, one of the things that's uh, critical, I think, to that feeling wasn't necessarily some of the more. Uh, uh, charitable things I do is actually just starting my own company. And it was that that gave me the, uh, the self-belief. And if you believe, if you think you're underpaid, wait till you start your own company. If you think you're overworked, wait till you start your own company. And if you think you're underappreciated, wait till you start banging on doors and start your own company. And, uh, you know, some of the things I've done uh, since starting my own company is uh, buy secondhand desks and have to pick the chewing gum that's from the bottom that's stuck on the bottom of it. Um, go outside the front door and pick cigarette butts from around the front door. Um, unblock toilets. Uh, do absolutely staggering amounts of washing up. You talked about sending a secretary out to go and get the um, uh, the um, dry cleaning. Well, I'd be the one that goes out and gets the dry cleaning for my juniors because, lo and behold, they've forgotten to go and get it and we've got a meeting in 10 minutes and they're all in a mess. So, you know, it, it, but none of that is rubbish. None of it is rubbish because you're on a mission and, uh, and the mission is all that counts. And uh, so that's, 
And that's where we are. In some ways, you can say, how oh, come on, you, you know, come on, it's only a PR firm, we're on a mission. But actually, even the PR firm is, is PR the way I would do it. It's, it's, um, what I do is I take um, graduates um, and I turn them into shit-hot writers. And, um, and I, we really focus on content and writing and really good writing, and we think that that's what drives everything. And it's the PR I wanted uh, when I was um, a banker, uh, investment banker, and when I was um, a, a magazine editor. Um, which is odd because you say, okay, I was a bit of a loser, but hang on, how come I was a, a banker and a magazine editor as well? And that's, this is the story bit which uh, Steve was desperate for me to uh, get onto. Um, I went to a, uh, what they would now call a failing um, Essex Comprehensive. I don't know if anyone saw uh, Educating Essex, but I was uh, jealous of that school. I thought it was a <laughs> really good school, actually. And uh, um, it was an ex-secondary modern, and um, and it was um, it was a failing secondary modern. Although it had some actually good points in secondary modern, as comprehensive, it was simply comprehensively failing. I left school um, two months before my sixteenth um, birthday, so I was fifteen when I left school. I had one O level uh, in geography, and um, and I then did a, a series of jobs um, in a um, in a factory. Um, actually, you talked about snoozing in the afternoon. There was one moment where the machine I was working went wrong, and I was just sitting there, and the and the foreman came along and said, "Are you asleep? I'll sack you if you are." And actually, I was waiting for the mechanic to turn up. So uh, you know, so uh, uh, you know, so it, it, it's a very different world that I lived in. I can promise you. Um, other jobs, I worked on a building site, um, shoveling, um, creating the uh, the mortar, and being the hod carrier. Um, um, I worked on a farm. Um, I was um, uh, plucking turkeys on a farm towards Christmas, and uh, where they would, the burly farmer would come out with a turkey that was wondering what was going on, and then it'd wring its neck in front of you, and it, once it stopped flapping, uh, you could uh, get on and, uh, and uh, pluck it. And uh, then um, I worked in a care home and would um, clean up after incontinent grannies. And, uh, and actually, one of my favorite jobs there was I used to shave the uh, grannies. And uh, I had an electric <laughs> shaver, and, uh, because they'd all develop beard, and I would shave away. And we'd have some lovely chats, actually, while I was sort of shaving the granny's beard off. And uh, that was one of the highlights of that job. And then I worked at an ice rink um, and uh, serving uh, uh, the delightful blueberry slush puppy to... Uh, um, uh, to uh, screaming children. But then I had a stroke of luck. And the stroke of luck was that I got a job at a very posh Mayfair um, estate management company. And, um, uh, but this estate management company were, had a problem. And the problem was that its biggest client was the North Thames Gas Board. And the North Thames Gas Board had about 2,000 houses scattered across the southeast that were all lived in by Wellard Cockney gas fitters, and they couldn't relate. This gang of slow rangers that run the estate management company simply couldn't relate to this gang of Cockney gas fitters, and they so they employed me in order to go around the southeast and talking to the gas fitters, and actually normally telling them that no, we weren't going to repair the roof, um, but um, but uh, but I was the one that employed simply to relate to these Cockney gas fitters. But this gang of slow rangers were. Strangely, they sort of took to me. I became a bit of a sort of mascot. They would sort of, you know, every time I walked in the room, they'd sort of throw a little funny dance and, um, and, and, and mimic my accent. But I, I became very good friends with them. And they said to me, you know, um, Bob, you have been shortchanged by your education. You are a bright guy um, and you have been diddled out of a good education. And you should go back and you should educate yourself. And, 
And that's what I did. And they were the first people ever um, that told me that, that basically said, you are as capable as anyone. You are bright. You can, you can educate yourself. And that's what I did. I went to evening classes and I did my A-levels. And five years later, I graduated from the University of Manchester um, with a high two one in politics and modern history. Now, that's obviously not the end of work being rubbish. That explains why I ended up becoming a magazine editor and also why I ended up becoming an investment banker. And, um, but it doesn't end the work being rubbish because work was still rubbish then. When I was a magazine editor, my uh, publisher, my boss, was a, uh, a philanderer with, and he was having an affair with um, the, another editor next to me and they were using my profit center's money in order to conduct the affair. And uh, which was completely destroying the economics on my on my magazine, and I was um, so you can see that that was a struggle. And when I was a banker, um, I ended up working for um, three characters that became known as the NatWest Three. You may remember them, Lucy. They were in the Enron scandal. They were they were um, fraudsters basically. And um, although they still claim they're innocent, although one of them said to me, "All I had was a conflict of interest." And um, but they were basically um, dragged to the United States and um, jailed over um, the Enron scandal. So so therefore, for me, work was still rubbish. And um, what changed was actually the fact was was starting my own business. Um, I, um, as I said, but what is that really the change for me is that I discovered that if self actualization and I became self actualized. And, and this is the bit where I, the story stops and I become a bit more technical. And I guess a lot of people have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it explained, once it became apparent to me, it explained what my journey had been and where I was. And clearly Maslow's hierarchy is well known. You start with the very basics, the food, water, things that you'll put yourself in danger for. You then go, um, you seek shelter. After you have shelter and safety, you seek love and kinship and friends. Then you move to self-esteem, which is obviously where work starts coming in. And then you move to self-actualization. So, but, but what happens in self-actualization is that, first of all, you take control. You become very, uh, you, you are in control of your world, uh, which was me starting a business. But then you seek morality and creativity. Actually, I mean, what's interesting about Maslow is that he wanted to explain why he found Eleanor Roosevelt so irritating, wasn't it? And Eleanor Roosevelt was sort of the Michelle Obama of her day. And, uh, and he found it really irritating. He was simply trying to explain why. So, and he found that they were self-actualized. These people were beyond materialism. But actually, it wasn't a negative thing. Actually, we all seek to be self-actualized. And my self-actualization obviously came in me writing the books because that obviously um, allowed me to be creative and also um, uh, have some morality because I was helping people. And also with the, um, the think tank, that gave me the morality. This was... Uh, for instance, this was our latest, uh, one of our latest reports, which was on um, turning offenders, people are, uh, um, obviously in prison, into entrepreneurs. And that it always started in terms of converting entrepreneurs. Anyway, that's the morality side, is that um, we help entrepreneur, uh, offenders become entrepreneurs. But here's the rub about modern work, is that, the, is that basically we're all banging on that door of self-actualization. We are all, um, we, you know, most of us were brought up in fairly comfortable circumstances and we're banging on that door of self-actualization and you can't have it immediately. You slightly have to serve your apprenticeship. You can't immediately be self-actualized. Everybody wants moral work and everybody wants creative work and everybody can have it, but you probably have to find your mission. You have to, you have to work out what it is you want in life 
and find your mission and work towards that. And it probably will be creative and it will be moral. So forget all this about work. Everybody thinks that work should be, you know, you should have a flash Google type office. You should have a play area. You should be hold loads of money. You should go on away days where you get to do silly things like that. Forget it. I mean, that's not, that is not what work's about. What you need is a mission. And at that point, you'll happily um, uh, unblock the loose. I just want to end, if I quickly can, with Viktor Frankl. I don't know if anyone knows Viktor Frankl. He was the key guy. that um, He was a psychologist in Vienna. He was dragged off to um, Auschwitz. Only he lived to tell the tale from his family. And what happened to him was that, uh, it, that the circumstances he was in was so extreme that he realized that what, what was happening to him was almost a social experiment in, in endurance, in human endurance. And so he suddenly had this sort of out-of-body experience where he was imagining himself giving lectures after the war and writing books after the war about his experiences. And he said, in the end, it beca he became freer than his captors in the end. And he said, he came up with this quote saying, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning. Um, and, uh, and I think that's absolutely spot on. Find your meaning. And I think, uh, I'm going to end with Friedrich Nietzsche, um, who said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. And I think, so find your why, find your how, and find your mission. So that's him. Lucy, would you? Right, I'm going to disagree with both of the previous speakers, and I'm also going to depart from form by being very brief. So there's going to be no little notes. So first of all, first of all, yeah. So first of all, we heard that the old days were great. Well, I'm also ancient, and the old days were actually rubbish too. Um, I started out in 1981, and the big thing that everyone did in office, offices then was smoke. And we all smoked all day. And if you were in an office that the walls were painted white, actually, they dripped yellow nicotine. It was in the offices of the Investors Chronicle, where I used to work, it was truly disgusting. So there was that. There was the sexism. Sexism was unbelievable then. And I know it's still rubbish. But boy, oh boy, was it rubbish then. We had the print unions. The print unions were trying to grab your bum when you went in. I mean, and that was deemed fine. I mean, you, there were sort of page three models everywhere. It was all completely and utterly acceptable. So that was pretty rubbish. We heard that in a way it was a laugh that you had the boozy lunches. But it also meant that in your offices, the senior people did bugger all. They did absolutely nothing. And because there was no movement, they were going to stay senior for ages. So um, it is very, very easy. And in fact, it was not only was that slow, everything was slow. So as a junior reporter, you're given something to write about. There's no Google to look it up on. You ring the library and say, can I have the file on such and such? You then wait, getting increasingly stressed until someone comes around with a sort of trolley of files and they pass it to you. You then bang out your article on a heavy metal typewriter so there's no sort of spell correct. There's no cut and paste. And then you, know, you probably get it when you have to do it again. So all of that is complete and utter rubbish. Um, but trouble is, I do also agree that I do look back on those rubbish times with a certain amount of nostalgia. And if you look at what's happened to the happiness stats, I mean, they're very dodgy because how on earth do you actually compare? But to the extent to which we believe them, the happiness stats, of regular working life don't present a happy picture. So I've been writing about this stuff on the FT where I've been for an embarrassing 
32 years. Um, it can't be as rubbish as, 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 as all that if I have stayed that long. But anyway, so having been there for that long, most of that time, I have been, I mean, I've got a sort of proper title, but I consider my title to be the FT's chief bullshit correspondent because I, every single Monday for over 20 years, I've written a column exposing the bullshit of modern life. And if I look back at the, colleague, uh, the columns that I wrote 20 years ago, it was all very tame. You and I'd say, isn't it awful when companies say downsizing? And that seemed like an awful thing to say then. I just want to read you from last week. This is from Mondelez, which is the company that bought, had the cheek to buy Cadbury's. And any of you who are dairy milk fans, they made this, the corners round on dairy meat to improve what they call the mouth feel. Now, that really is rubbish. <laughs> anyway, they are looking for a new marketing person, and this was what they said. Our search for a successor will focus on finding a digital first, disruptive, and innovative leader who can build on Dana's legacy and mobilize breakthrough marketing in a rapidly changing global consumer landscape. So the reason I read it in that weird way was for you to add up the number of crappy cliches in one sentence, in one sentence. I mean, I could go on for ages, but I'm just so immersed in these, but 10 cliches in one sentence. That is completely amazing. For a job, if you're marketing in a sugar company that is the new tobacco, the only real thing is that everyone's going to hate you. So anyway, all the rest of it is crap. Mostly when I talk to audiences, they aren't nice audiences like this. They are business audiences and they are actually paying me to come along and talk, which is extremely nice, which isn't rubbish at all. But I normally ask them, or I sometimes ask them, to put up their hands if they feel passionate about their jobs. Now, these are people who work, let us say, at KPMG. Anyone here work at KPMG? Do you? No, okay. <laughs> You're just scoffing as if, yeah. So, if you ask people who are slavishly with their bosses in the room, how many people feel passionate about their jobs? Every single one. It is literally impossible to feel passionate about the sorts of things that KPMG do. So every single one of those people are sort of being really untrue to themselves to please their bosses. And I mean, it's sort of called emotional labor. And there's a sort of, but it is, that is really, really rubbish. So that is one of the things that has made office life so much worse. Um, the next is, I could summarize it by just saying headphones. People sit in offices wearing headphones. So the conviviality, the whole point of offices is it's convivial. If you all sit wearing headphones, it's not convivial anymore. We don't actually chat anymore. If you go into offices, the only people doing chatting are on the fire escape, sort of chatting on their phones. They're sort of, it's so much not a laugh. You, with hot desking, you don't sit next to the same people. And worst of all, people don't even have offices. How many of you don't work in an office regularly? Yeah, you see, that's still, that's quite a lot. Crouch uncomfortably in sort of cafes and stuff. That's really rubbish. Um, so all of that fabric is being destroyed so that the idea that you go to the pub together, you know, once a week, it just, just sort of doesn't, doesn't, doesn't exist even slightly. But the third reason, and I blame you for this, <laughs> I disagree with this 
so strongly, I can hardly say, the mission, the, the, the mission. Maslow has destroyed work for all of us. It didn't occur to me when I started work that my work needed to have blinking meaning. If you want your work to have meaning, I can guarantee you will be miserable. You know, we are aiming way too high. And I actually think what you've done is irresponsible. Um, but if we have, you know, when in the glory days of Saatchi, when it was a laugh, why was it a laugh? Because you had a secretary who picked up your dry cleaning and all sorts of nice things like that. Now, that is great. If I had a secretary who picked up my dry cleaning, I'd be happy. So I do think that the secret to making work a bit less rubbish is to lower our expectations. So with all of those three things, I'm now going to put in a plug. And am I about to get a piece of paper? No. OK, just a very quick plug. Um, a lot of people do hate their jobs. And when they've been doing them for a very, very long time, they hate them even more. And if they want them to mean something, they hate them even more because they don't mean anything. So I, even though actually I love my job because, actually maybe love is too strong a word because I don't want to hype it up too much, but I like it very much, which is why I've been doing it for 20, whatever, 32 years. But at the same time, I kind of think enough is enough. So I thought, what the hell am I going to do next? I would like to do something that is useful. I think useful is a better word than, you know, meaning because it's more practical, it's more achievable. What I want to do that is useful is teach kids in a difficult school. And I thought that maybe there are other people like me who have been at bloody KPMG for 30 years who would like to do something useful. So I have set up a charity called Now Teach. How many of you have heard of Teach First? Yeah, quite. Yeah, exactly. So this is, as it were, teach last. Uh, although you can't call it like, you know, I wanted to call it teach last, but, but everyone said it was going to be crematorium next stop and that bad branding. So it's now got this sort of slightly naff name, now teach. But still, the, the, you, you get the idea. So it is for people who have done other things and want to do something useful. Now, these are people who have had good jobs and they'll be doing exhausting jobs and earning no money. Would you think lots of people would apply to that? Would you think it would be a disaster? So whose hands up who thinks lots? Yes. You are so right. It was a leading question. So we have had, <laughs> we have had a thousand people apply, many of whom have been derivative traders and, 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 and goodness knows what. Question will be, is actually any of you teachers in the room? Thank goodness for that. Because whenever I talk enthusiastically to teachers, they tell me that the most rubbish work there is, is teaching. Because it's got all the other things that we've talked about. You don't even get time to go to the loo. So on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're beneath the bottom. Um, so, so I don't know, I don't know what that's going to mean, but, um, and I don't know if it's going to be a disaster or not, and whether it's going to be more or less rubbish than being a journalist, but maybe I can come back next year and we can do a, a 30 however many things about Britain, something on teaching. So I'll come back then and so I'll tell you. So that's it. I'm within time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out about the House of St Barnabas, go to hosb.org.uk. And for more information on Bug, go to buglondon.co.uk. And both websites have details on how you can get tickets and come along to one of our talks. So why not come along? Maybe I'll see you there.